Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster during these times as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Sally Fife. Sally is the Managing Director of the Cork Hills Motor Group, a dealer group representing the Volkswagen and Hyundai franchises. Sally, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. It's great to have the opportunity to join you. Uh, thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on to the air with us, of course. Now, Sally, the um, purpose of this podcast series is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. The leader to me is the person who drives the business, um, the person who gives it the direction, the person who looks after the staff and who works with them to enable them to do the best they possibly can. Um, there is an element of management in it, but to me, it's more about actually engaging each individual so that they can be the best they can possibly be, which will then deliver the end result. I think it's also about making sure that you're surrounded by individuals who can also nurture the best out of you as a leader. I think that's very much a two-way thing, isn't it, when it comes to leadership? I think any relationship within a work environment is a two-way thing. Um, I think all of us are learning on a daily basis, and you're right, I think feedback and uh, opportunities to get different ideas from other people in the organisation only makes the leader grow and get better. Mm. And there's certainly an element, as you say, of management within leadership, especially in the uh, the business environment. But would you say that leadership and management are fundamentally different things? I think they are different things. Management to me is about actually running a business day to day. It's the decisions you make. It's the uh, managing cash flow accounts. It, it, it's the fundamentals. Leadership is I think a leader has to be a manager because they have to deliver that side of it. Mm-hmm. But the leadership element is about how you actually help and enable people to deliver those things. It's about the inspiration, the direction, the clarity, um, and as I said before, really bringing people with you um, in order to agree, um, achieve the objective. Mm. And you've worked, of course, for a great many years and gathered a lot of experience in the automotive industry. So um, how would you describe your own leadership style in that respect? I think I've grown and changed as a leader over the years. Um, as you say, I'm lucky enough to have worked in a number of different organisations, both from the brand manufacturer perspective and then more recently from the dealership perspective. And I think the experiences you gain in each help to define who you are and, and the lessons you learn along the way. I've certainly, in, in terms of my leadership, become, I think, less maybe less dictatorial than when I was very young, when you feel that you have to have that control, that you have to make sure things are done in a certain way. I think as you get a little bit older and a bit more experienced, you learn to trust people more. Um, And I think you learn how to use emotional empathy and areas like that in order to make the best out of people. I'm very lucky to have had um, a couple of very good mentors as well from a leadership perspective through my journey. And access to individuals like that um, and watching the style, the way they do things um, can be incredibly powerful. I guess also it's the lessons you learn um, from people that you don't see to be leaders as well. Um, And certainly I had one of those early in my days where I think you look at it afterwards and think that's not how I want to do it can also be equally as valuable. It's interesting that you mentioned mentors that you've experienced throughout your uh, business career, because mentors can sometimes be some of the most influential leaders out there, can't they? And they are necessarily they aren't necessarily leaders who are at the head of organisations or sticking their heads above the parapet. They can be very much more subtle in the work that they do, can't they? 
They can. And I think, you know, a lot of people have the misguided belief that you have to be at the top of a business to be a leader. I think you can show leadership skills with a very small team of two people um, in exactly the same way as somebody at the top. Um, certainly, um, the mentors uh, and the people I've learned from have tended to be the people I report directly into. Um, so they mm. would have been superior, like more senior than I am, but by no means people right at the top of the business determining overall direction. And you also mentioned um, as well that being a leader is very much um, a process of development and constantly learning. No one leader is ever necessarily a finished article as such, are they? I don't think we're ever a finished article. Um, I think one of the the early lessons you learn when you're developing as a leader is that there are always other different perspectives that could be better than yours. um, And there are different ways of doing things. You also have to have the courage sometimes to make decisions and get things wrong. Um, and realize that actually that is, again, part of the journey and that actually making mistakes sometimes can be the most powerful lessons we learn of all. I think that's absolutely right. The experience of going through that, making mistakes and embracing that as a learning curve is so, so important. And I think sometimes people can be afraid of trying new things and maybe taking even measured risks, especially in the younger generations, because they're afraid of failure. I agree with you. I think there's still an awful lot of um, cultures that actually still have that that element to it as well, where people feel that they have to be perfect at their job, they have to be able to deliver it, to be able to say, I don't know how to do something, or I think I've got it wrong, is something that's seen as a very big negative. So I think it's a mix of two two things. I think it's an individual's journey of self-awareness and the way in which they handle those things and and actually understanding that it's okay from a personal perspective, which is something that's difficult for all of us because none of us like to get things wrong, but also having a culture in the business around it that I guess is inspired by the ultimate leader that actually says it's okay to get things wrong and it's okay not to know, not to know the answer now um, and that it's a good thing to, to, to make mistakes and to learn from them. I think that's um, absolutely right. And um, also we talked about the importance of looking to others as well as a leader and learning from other people, because sometimes leaders themselves, um, especially again among the younger generation who may be just starting out in business, can be a little bit reluctant to look to others and embrace different ways of doing things because they think that their way is the best way. Or sometimes they may just want to be that sort of lone wolf and it's important to remember that one is never alone and in times such as this at the moment with the COVID-19 crisis that message becomes all the more important. I I completely agree with you I think particularly at the moment the ability to use other people as a sounding board um, to admit that actually you don't know what's coming next I had a similar conversation with one of my guys this morning Um, and you actually have to be honest sometimes and say, I don't know the answer, but you know, what do you think? Let's gain all the perspectives. This is the best fit decision we can make direction together, but let's keep reviewing it as things change and everybody feeds into it and then find the next thing forward. And that journey that you've been on mm -hmm, yourself, um, and that that journey that you've been on yourself, I was going to say, Sally, that's really defined you as a leader. Um, If you could actually maybe say go back 10 years, is there anything during your journey that you'd perhaps do differently now? Or would you continue to just let things play out as they are and essentially just embrace the learning experiences that you've had already? I'm not sure I'd do anything in my journey because I think the different things and the environments I've worked in and I did a master's a couple of years ago as well, all of which helped me to become the person I am today. And I wouldn't want to have changed that. 
would I have reacted and behaved differently 10 years ago, knowing what I do today? Possibly. I certainly think I would have had more confidence in areas I didn't at the time, like being prepared to fail, being prepared not to know the answers, and it being okay to say that to people and not feeling that I would lose maybe status or something as a result of doing it. I think there's a lot of pressure at the moment, especially for leaders to be providing answers for a lot of worried people who are out there. But sometimes, of course, the leader has doesn't necessarily know any more than the people around them because of all the uncertainty and they're having to plan for certain eventualities, be proactive, be cool headed and just offer that reassurance that's required. I completely agree with you. I mean, I think the most important thing any leader can do at the moment is to be honest and truthful with people they're working with and to talk to them on a regular basis. And I think they appreciate the fact that sometimes you say you don't know the answers. But as long as you clearly say that, you say what you're going to do um, and then give them that confidence in a different way, I think it can be equally as effective. And if we think about the uh, the future now, Sally, before we do wrap things up um, and we think about the whole course of uh, this uh, current situation we find ourselves in, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and the Core Kills Motor Group and also what you hope to achieve, not just in that time, but also beyond then when we begin to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic? I think the next 12 months are going to be incredibly difficult for a number of businesses, um, the motor trade not being unique to that at all. The hardest thing, I guess, at the moment is the uncertainty, is knowing what the next two, three, six months are going to look like in terms of numbers, market, consumer demand, requirements, etc. And from my point of view, I'd like to bring the business very successfully through the situation we're in now. I'd like to use it as an opportunity to develop relationships within my team. I'd like to use it as an opportunity to increase agility and flexibility um, areas that maybe we haven't had the opportunity to focus on the past that the current circumstances absolutely thrive with and just basically bring the business out stronger than it was before. Certainly seems as if there's a great deal of um, ambition there, uh, Sally. And um, I think what may be fantastic in the uh, next year or so, once we start to see the fog lifting in the current situation, and we hopefully see that upward trajectory, is maybe to even have you back on the air with us just to catch up on how the business is getting on, how it's continuing to innovate. Um, but for now, um, I have to say it's been a real um, insightful experience and also an absolute pleasure having you on the air with us. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. You're welcome. And I hope it's of interest and use to people. For certain, uh, Sally, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well, for sure. Thank you. And very much the same to you and the rest of the team. Thank you. That was Sally Fife, the Managing Director of the Core Kills Motor Group. Uh, coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Liz. And that's coming up next. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when, of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of 
of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years now, yes. actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since... Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's it's very challenging um, to... Um, kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world so uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, and an investment management firm to help you um because it is quite a complex arena and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally so um if you have that as a backdrop uh and then politically you have what's going on um with post brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe, Lizzie, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're, the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of 
the um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go- it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also mm. quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, it's because, and again, you've hit the nail on the head, because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with, with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least, whether they become actions is another <laughs> a thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, the system, but ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz. Yes, but I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um, now, looking at, at a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a, a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole <laughs> here. At least, is there a hope now? That because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- far more certainty in the market. And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think I think that that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst you know thirty first of January came and went, um, you know we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period, mm. um, and for for UK. Um, savers and uh, and investors uh, in terms of where the rules are made there's still there's still not some clarity about that um you know we're we're still uh, well we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um european rulemaking um down the line that's still to be negotiated i mean we've always said that actually for for savers and investors we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds um however it, you know the, the majority of our of our firms look after uk savers um and therefore a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book 
that make sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an, uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in Europe, in Europe, England or U- the UK rather and and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of, uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yeah, the same two, piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, um, absolutely, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yeah. uh, now, you, you, you've mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I th- I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate. Um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is, has always been that the polluter pays, but the polluters have, have long since folded by the time it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that 
you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine, well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, And that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, We're in the process of finalizing a paper uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that. Uh, system, and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform, in terms of reform, what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, yeah. It is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is you know gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what. What's the pathway to success for them? And what? And and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here. This is already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a a little step back and uh, and look at um at the operations of Pimfor again. It's what Pimfor do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organisations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. Mm. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the the values that we have as an organization. We we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt, and I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it? That that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think, and because of the time here, we we I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next twelve months is full of uncertainty. What are uh, the plans Pimfa has for it, nonetheless? Um, so I think our well, our key priority this this next twelve months is 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 to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this. But because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers 
on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, mm-hmm. because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another, of other things promoting the sector as a, as a force for good and as an integral part of a, of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental wellbeing uh, is, is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be uh, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things. And perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.